All right, we are back. I am back. We kicked Tyler out. Season four podcast versus performance. We're back. We're back in the studio office. Uh, season four is going to look a little different, but very similar. Not that Nick here is looking at me like he has any idea what we're talking about. <laughs> but season four, I uh, I've come into a lot of spare time. So lucky you guys. You're going to hear a lot of my voice, which is probably not a good thing. But we'll get to that in a minute. Uh, we're going to go down a little bit more of a topical season where one we get to know our guests but two uh we're going to talk about a specific topic that uh, our guests are involved in directly or have done uh previous experience with so that's what season four is going to look like so lucky you guys sending your requests for topics people what you want to know about um it should be pretty interesting from now until march april when we uh kick off season five but without further ado uh today's guest Mr. Nick, from Mr. Nick. It's <laughs> <laughs> like you introduced me like <laughs> Dr. Nick. This. Oh, you just said twenty-two-year-olds are old, so yeah, this well, is where we're at. Well, I'm getting to that point in my life, aren't I? Yes, we have Nick from Mets Performance in Mentone, Mulgrave. Mulgrave. I know it was an M. It's an M. Yeah, it's an M. Yeah. It was close enough. Yeah. Nick and I uh, went to uni together um, through our undergrad through sports science, and Nick uh, kept in the sports science field where all the smart people stay. And I went to strength and conditioning where all the less smart people stay. So that's where we're at uh, today, Nick. We're going to get to learn uh, Nick again. You've Actually, no, you haven't been on this one. I haven't one. been on, I went podcast, on yours. No. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I went yeah. on yours. We're going like, to get to know Nick, uh, but also we're going to talk about nutritional strategies for endurance performance and some other things around nutrition and sports performance, which will be pretty interesting. But without further ado again, Nick, who are you? Yeah, so, uh, yeah, sports scientist. Um, as you said, we studied together a long time ago now. No, um, studies are a reach. <laughs> you studied. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> well, uh, we, did, we did one group assignment that I reckon you probably probably carried me through a bit, but that's all right. So, um, but, yeah, outside of that, uh, working in endurance performance. So primarily with – I describe it as endurance and ultra-endurance. Um, a lot of our clientele are triathlon, cycling, running. But then it, the most – the majority of that group, again, are – three, four-hour-plus events. So we have a lot of Ironman, half Ironman triathlon, ultra-distance runners, um, which obviously it changes things completely compared to just the typical 5K parker on the weekend. It's like we're now dealing with these extensive events. And, I mean, for the most part, the, the Ironman guys, they're out there for anywhere between, realistically, eight hours, 12 hours, 10 hours, depending on how, how I don't sleep are. that much. Yeah, it, it's, it's, it, becomes a, it becomes a really interesting um, interesting sort of space. So obviously still do a lot of work with uh, the shorter stuff. So we, we do get um, park runners or 10Kers, half marathon, the, the traditional sort of common endurance, but then we get the crazy people who come in and do the, the yeah, silly cra- events. Crazy is a good word. You've yep. got to be a different character to get into one of those. Yeah. Or Let alone stay in it, actually. Yeah, yeah. And, and it's it's an interesting thing as well cause, because of the length of the event, most of them are only racing once maybe twice a year at that distance so becomes very different to something like footy basketball whatever it's like all right we got something to look forward to every week it's like we've got nine months before we can before we can get out there and actually race or compete yeah and i think i see a lot of people see people that do ultra marathons or ultra endurance events and think not the training's easy but it's similar to what they experience yeah. and it's worlds different yeah yeah and it's one of those things that you don't know until you know yeah. But also from the point of view of like, yeah, your, your long run isn't 10K anymore. No. Your long run becomes... You, 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 well, your 10K is just kind of another midweek run. <laughs> yeah, which is crazy. Yeah. Uh, what, <laughs> what made you, one, go down the endurance path with sports science, and two, what makes you stay? 
Yeah, so I think from a couple of sides of things, I, I mean, I've always been interested in the endurance sports. Um, I raced triathlon come through as a kid. It wasn't my chosen sport. Like I did footy and cricket like most, most kids did. But then over summer, I'd go and race um, just short distance tries and sort of I'd always been a swimmer as well. So like coming out of the back end of a footy season, I'd been swimming all year. I was kind of like the running component's easy, the swimming component's easy. May as well just jump on the bike a few times and, and see how we go. So I've always sort of been interested in in that aspect. But then um, in terms of then working in it, like coming back to where we sort of split out of uni, it was like I went and interned in strength conditioning initially and I worked out really, really quickly that being on a gym floor just wasn't for me. What did you do that? Uh, so I, I interned first at University of Michigan. Yeah, um, we'll get into that. Second, end, end, yeah, end of, end of my second year of undergrad, I went over the States, went there. And then Melbourne Vic Centre in the swimming. Yeah, so right, yeah. it's now MSAC swimming, I think, because yeah. the, the club folded. But yeah, like SNC, I still love it and I still enjoy it. I still have the process of going in and training in the gym. But the the problem solving aspect of of that and sort of the day to day of it probably just wasn't really sort of where I was interested. I'm more interested in the, the testing side, the physiology side. Um, and then ultimately from my own stuff now in terms of training, like largely a bit more conditioning sort of focused in the stuff I do. So that's where I sort of naturally fell a bit more into endurance. And then part, apart from anything, at, at the time, sort of Luke, who, who set up METS, um, started everything up. Perfect timing when I was transitioning out of uni. It was a good opportunity to jump in. Uh, we have a testing lab, so we do a lot of VO2max and, and all of that. So it was sort of this perfect opportunity to get in the field and start working rather than just volunteering and interning. Um, and then obviously that then sort of snowballed into working in it pretty much full time yeah. for the last what, four or five years. Yeah, who knows with COVID? I lost yeah. track of years. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um, was did you play any team sports growing up as well, or was it just purely weekend endurance kind of stuff? No, nah, so no, so the the triathlon stuff was kind of just like an addition. So I grew up swimming. So I, I've been a swimmer since I was I don't know the toddler stuff where you jump in with your parents all the way through to I, I swam regularly until I was about eighteen, nineteen. Um, not I had, in like I had nippers in my head, but that's life saving. That's a life saving. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I just swam like pool staff in a squad. Nothing ever really serious. It was only ever sort of like once a week. Um, I got re- I got reasonably good, mm. but it was never. It was more something that I just enjoyed the process of swimming and growing up swimming. I sort of wanted to continue, but then like I played footy um, through winter until I was what six, sixteen, seventeen, um, and then cricket in the summer. Like they were the two major things that I wanted to want to do. And like like a lot of kids, when you sort of like five, six years of age, you're like, oh, yeah, I'll, I'll play cricket for Australia one day and then in the winter season I'll go and play footy in the AFL. It's like I worked out pretty quick that neither of those two were, were going to be something I was going to be ever good enough to reach that level at. So, Did you want to, even though you might have known? Um, Is that why you stayed in sport? Yeah, that's that's definitely why I stayed in sport. That's that. Well, that's probably actually where the umpiring side of things came into it, um, which I know we're kind of jumping over. No, nah, it doesn't matter. There's a lot Locked of things going on. Podcast, man. You do whatever <laughs> you want. <laughs> but but that's where I worked out. Like cricket was something I always enjoyed just from the social team aspect. But then footy, it just got to a point where I, I just became less and less interested in playing playing footy, even from a social side of things. Um, we had quite a competitive group that I grew up playing footy with. And so it just got it just got to that point where I just I just wasn't committed enough to want to keep playing into sort of senior senior footy, reserves footy. Um, and it just didn't really interest me as much, but that's where I started started umpiring like junior footy, um, part like well, a couple of years prior to, to finishing playing. Um, had a bit of potential there. Saw that that was probably a more viable pathway for me to be an elite athlete, so mm-hmm. to speak. 
Um, You're still an athlete, mate. You work well, harder than most well, people do. <laughs> well, it's a, it's a type of thing. It's like um, I sort of somewhat look at it as my opportunity to sort of explore that that passion I had of wanting to make it at the elite level from an athletic perspective myself. But then external to that, I mean, I've always just wanted to work in sport anyway. So I guess that's where the the career from a sports science sense came from was regardless of what I was doing myself, I'd, I'd be working in sport anyway. Um, the, the umpiring stuff now is a bit of a selfish little elite athlete endeavour. Um, nothing wrong with the, being selfish for the, for the time, for the time my, being anyway I, it's my pet hate around the world selfishness because at the end of the day it's our lives let's yeah. just do what we yeah. want um, and when we talk about like that selfish side of things like we still want what we want like a lot of us especially in a health and fitness just being very niche here but in a health and fitness world like a lot of us exist to help people make less of the mistakes that we made to start with but also it's filling the void that potentially we didn't get to where we wanted to or Anything like that. And if you still have the opportunity to go and strive for higher performing honours, then, I mean, why not, right? Like, yeah. I don't think it's selfish. Yeah. It's a, well, it's it's one of those ones that, I mean, it sort of, it, 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 fills that, it fills that gap. Like, I yeah, like I said, I knew pretty early that I wasn't going to play one of those sports at a pretty elite level. Um, but it's still my opportunity to sort of stay, stay involved in that space. Um, and it's a good just outlet, apart from anything. It's just like get out, train, keeps me on my toes in terms of, Trying to improve as well, um, especially with the like, I, like I'm not training anywhere near the extent of some of my Ironman guys, but like at least it's it, it's one of those things I can fully appreciate. Then you get majority it. of the stuff that they're going through as yeah, well, rather than it. just sort of going, "Hey, here's a 30 hour training week, go and do yeah. it." It's like, well, I've got a reasonable understanding of what that's sort of like. Yeah, was triathlon something you wanted to dabble in as well, or um, not knowing that you felt that cricket and footy weren't. Uh, a path that you were going to go down from an athletic it, point of view. Did triathlon yeah. fill that void as well? or It's sort of an interesting one because once umpiring really started taking place um, and I sort of really got involved in that, that sort of took out took up a bunch of my time. And that's actually probably the reason why I stopped racing tries as a kid. Um, you just get into longer, longer footy seasons as you get into senior footy, moving up into sort of state league footy for the last six or so years now. It's like your pre-seasons get longer, you just run out of time in the year to be able to do other stuff. Um, but then, yeah, tri- triathlon was something that, like, I want to continue to go and race, but it's it's something definitely now that I'm more, I want to go and do it for the enjoyment aspect. Like, I want to get better at it, but yeah. it, it was, it never really turned into, gee, I could, I, I could race this as my sport. Yeah. Um, I just never had the, I, like, I, I really enjoy it as a sport. And even, like, when I was younger, I used to race some of, the, like, the state squad kids when I was, like, 15, 14, 15. And I'd do pretty well, and I'd like podium and things like that, but it never was, oh, I'm, like, I'm just going to drop everything else and start racing triathlon because I've got some potential. Whereas umpiring was definitely more that, that space of, yeah, I've got some potential here. I can actually go pretty far, and I sort of took to it a bit more with a bit, probably a bit different motivation for it. Yeah. So, But then, like, I guess from an interest perspective, probably that enjoyment of the sport enough has then kept me in it from a working sense. Um I really like breaking it down and analysing it as a sport, but racing it, I'm also just sort of genetically, I just know I'm not quite, Yeah, I, I'd never be elite enough. I like going really, really fast over yeah, short you distances. You could still go out tomorrow and do one if you wanted to, oh, but yeah, you know 100%. it's not going to be... You know. And, and I'll, I still I still want to go and race and, and do that, but I know it's it's not something that I, I've ever really had the motivation to strive to be elite yeah. at. Um, I want to be good at it, but, but I, I guess, yeah, umpiring-wise is something that, yeah, for me... 
for whatever reason, and it's probably one of those ones I can't really fully, haven't really fully thought about the difference. Well, no one's asked you. But, well, yeah, true. Um, <laughs> but, yeah, umpiring wise has always just been like, since I felt like I was good enough and I I could see there was a bit of a pathway, I'm like, yeah, that, that's what I want to do. As long as I can and as long as far as I can get with it, that's that's what I want to do with it yeah. athletically. When did you realise that was a possibility? Or how did you realise, I guess, is probably a better option. I'm probably, sure there's a lot of kids on the weekends that go boundary umpire for their 60 bucks a game or something like that. Well, maybe. I, I don't know what the pay is anymore. Say. That's what I used well, to say. Yeah, yeah, pretty roughly. <laughs> I, ne- I never boundary umpired. Yeah. So I'm going to be a bit of an umpiring story. Oh, here we go. Um, but <laughs> no, so like early on, I remember doing, I remember the first ever game I umpired was like a practice match. Um, like a junior practice match, we would have been like under 10s or 12s or something. And I finished I finished the game and the feedback I got was like really, really positive. And really naively, I was like, oh, well, that means I'm like really good. Um, I guess I'll keep going with this. As it then progressed though, I, I did start to move through grades pretty quick, which is not an uncommon thing. And I reckon for the first, all the way through my junior umpiring career and then into starting to do senior footy locally, you sort of you sort of think you're probably a little bit better than what you are because local footy, they really want to try and get you up to the top. One, because they're just short on numbers. And you're young and you've fallen. Correct. But then two, it's also like, I mean, the the more they can sort of keep younger umpires in it and sort of promote and get more going, like it, it just helps the league out. So you sort of go through like getting a senior footy and then once you get up to state league, you realise that you're just the same as the other 50 guys that got promoted that year. Yeah. Um, who all thought they were the best at, like in their own leagues respectively and you all come together. But I think it was probably that point of getting up to State League was one step that I went, yeah, I've definitely got a bit of a career here. But my first couple of years at State League, I definitely sort of knew, all right, I, I know I'm at a level that stacks up with all these other guys who are coming up from local, from other leagues, if not outperforming. Um, and sort of had that feeling that, yeah, I could definitely make it if I, if I really tried hard enough. It's going to be difficult, but um, yeah, I, I sort of, I sort of always had that inkling that I've got, I had, I have enough natural talent, which is a strange thing. It's like who has natural talent for umpiring, but I always sort of had that feel that it, a lot of the things haven't been really difficult in terms of picking up all the positioning stuff, like the laws, knowledge, and all of that type of stuff that we have to do was never a real struggle. But then working, working on it to keep getting better was the process part was like really enjoyable. So I went. Combination of that, I go regardless of then how far I get to, like I know I'm probably going to be able to go a reasonable way. Mm-hmm. What's the what's the progression plan look like? So From you're, an you're, sense. Yeah, you're you're a little Nick. What is thirteen year old man? Does someone come to you and go, you know, we see you know talent in you, we see you know a future, something like that? Like, what does that whole process looks like? Because yeah. I'm sure very rarely someone gets exposed to that pathway. I'm sure we've all heard of it's cricket, footy, athletics, yeah. etc., pathways, basketball, whatever you want to call it, like. So we know someone that's been through pathways, but yeah. I don't think anyone really has any idea of like an umpiring pathway. What's that look like? It's a really interesting one, and it it's changed a lot since I went through it, and it it changes it changes every couple of years, to be honest, because yeah. they, they come up with a new system of what's better, what's not. The progression of like the women's game now has changed our pathway slightly yeah. compared to when I first came through, and that wasn't really a thing yet. Um, but yeah, like so, in terms of right at the beginning, you just start doing junior games, start working through the grades. So you start at 10s, 14s, 16s, like ultimately trying to get into like senior footies where you want to be. Um, so I did a couple of years of senior footy at, at local level. Did a Division 2 grand final at the time, which 
most probably like going going through. Typically, you, you kind of want to be doing Division One um, mm-hmm. before you get up to State League. But I was sort of still at that point where I'd only really done like twenty senior, oh, 25, 30 senior games, and then did a senior grand final, which which is a pretty quick progression. Um, at that sort of point, it then comes down to like, yeah, you, your local coaches then sort of nominate you based on who they think yeah. has enough talent. So um, I was pretty lucky. I had a couple of like ex-AFL umpires um, who were my coaches coming through local footy. So yeah. they uh, that also gave me a good amount of confidence. Like, all right, they know what they're doing. Um, they've done AFL grand finals. They've done 200, 300 plus games. Like they're putting me up saying, yeah, you're good enough. Like I must have something. Yeah. From there, you get to you get to state league, so VFL level, um, which encompasses VFL football, the old TSA Cup, the NAB League now, boys boys and girls now. It was just boys when I came through. Um, we also had like the VFL reserves or the development league comp, which yeah. doesn't exist, Oop. and then the uh, the VFLWs within that as well. So first first year up is pretty much under 18s. Um, you want to be in the 18s, like mm-hmm. it's that's where it starts to split in terms of. You get your opportunity in the 18s, you do really well, you stay there. If you're not doing great. Is it a similar pathway to being a player? Kind of. Kind of sounds like it, yeah. Kind of. We, we have a couple of squads. So we have like a senior squad, which will do the VFL senior footy. Um, and then we have like a development list that there's opportunities to do senior footy, but you've got to be really good. Yeah. Like if you're coming straight out of local, like very rare that someone will come out first year out of local footy and go straight in the ones. Um, like it, it it just doesn't happen. You've got to sort of do your time a bit. Um but yeah, a couple of years of 18s and then you work your way into that senior group. Uh, once you're in that senior group, you then got to fight for your spot and keep your spot. Um, uh, outside of that, then once you're in that sort of senior football space, then it's you're starting to get watched from an AFL perspective. Yeah. Um, so they'll, like our coaches, identify who's who's doing well, um, who's worthy to be looked at. AFL then come around, they invite you to talent championships. Like I did down the 16 national champs. Uh, 2017 they start looking at things like that you start getting selected for AFLW that's then part of our pathway up to AFL men's football yep. um, of which yeah done that couple of seasons now um, and then from there it's whoever's the best in the country um, which, is, which is one of those difficult things for us it's we're competing against the Victorian umpires for, yeah, for spots in the AFL list yeah. there might be one or two that open up each year but then you you don't really know you know a few guys from like going and doing those talent camps like yep. you know guys in other states but we have no idea who's going well in WA halfway through the year yep. um and what that means and it's different football and like South Australia have a few different rules so that yeah, changes yeah, the game style like that that that's where you sort of just got to keep putting your best foot forward and then hopefully the phone call goes your way yeah what are your KPIs what do you get measured on so we get measured on a handful of like really core competencies. Most of it is like for us from a field umpire perspective, decision making is our first and foremost. Like, how do you measure that? Well, uh, <laughs> I think this is a challenge that every business face. Yeah. How do you measure decision making? Let alone being an umpire. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just I'm correlating part, the two over here. Part of it is objective. Yeah. Because we have a really clearly set out law book. Yeah, correct. Yeah. The other part of it is very subjective yeah. because <laughs> we have interpretations of those laws. Yeah. So. Something quite objective is, like, for example, a high, t- a high contact is a high contact. Yeah. Like, if you're hit above the shoulders, it's high. Mm-hmm. The interpretation to that, though, is if you go and pick up the ball and you run into a stationary tackler, yep. it's not high anymore. Yeah. But, so, we, we get assessed, like, we'll have a coach. VFL senior footy is great, 
lower down than that, we actually don't have a coach at every game. So yep. that's where it gets hard to get feedback. So at this point, it, it it's a bit easier. So every game we have a coach who goes through, they're basically sitting in the box writing down every decision. At AFL level, they use um, the arc. So where you see the score review yep. on TV, there's a room next to that. Someone's job is to sit there and call out every decision. Yeah, They code all of it as you would with like kicks, handballs and stuff. It's like yep. champion data, but like umpiring decisions. Mm-hmm. Then there's a third person who goes back and watches every decision and assesses them correct or incorrect. Yep. And then why? Yeah, And then they correlate it with the coach. Whereas our one is a bit more manual. So we don't have the arc system, but they code pretty much everything. Um, go through most of the time, you're able to have a conversation about it later and yep. sort of you don't agree with what the coach said because you had a better look or a different look yeah a lot of the time you get caught out by reverse camera angles yeah, so if yeah, i'm on the course. center of the ground here i can't see the far side but the camera's over there yeah, yeah and yeah. the coach goes well why didn't you see that it's like well yeah, yeah i'm with you so like we we get largely graded on decision making but then within that even that example there of where my position like our positioning is everything yeah. you get yourself in the right spot you get the free kick mm-hmm. and you'll get it correct um, work rate is another one. Like if you're in the right spot quick enough yep. um, and regularly enough and consistently enough, you're going to make more accurate decisions because you're more relaxed, calm, composed. Is this like a metres per minute thing? <sighs> Not really. That's, that's a very subjective work rate. Okay. It's more of a, it's more of a coach's feel. Sure. What, like it, and it's, when I say it's obvious, I mean... Yeah, yeah, I know if what I, you mean. If I was yeah, to yeah. go and watch... If I was to go and watch... You can tell... Guys umpire, yeah, I, you, you can... You can tell who's working hard and who's not, yep. and who's working enough and who's not. Yep. Um, uh, and then other other things is like match management. So how are you communicating with players? Yep. Any volatile situations that pop up, how do you deal with that? Like if there was a report, what was your process with that? Um, things like blood rules and all, all the little bits and pieces. Yeah, the um, intricacies. Yeah, so so there's quite a lot of things going on. Yeah. Um, is it like a reporting thing? You get given a report after a game or is it more yeah, so informal? We, the, the process of that has changed a lot at state league level since I got there. Yep. It very much was, it used to be a, basically a point system. Mm-hmm. So you would start at like 140 points and you would lose points. <laughs> so if you had, an, you had a recall bounce, it was like minus, minus two points or something. If you had a straight bounce, that one. <laughs> yeah. Well, this, this is the thing. So it's it, like umpiring has always been very negative. Yeah. Um, and because everyone from a football perspective expects us to be perfect. Yeah, so yeah. it's like, that's why we had this point system. They've changed it now. So we get ranked on these competencies based on like, a, it's like, I think the ratings were excellent, very good, solid, uh, requires attention. Solid. <laughs> no, so sol- solid's, solid's not a great description, but it is because... I've just sol- never heard that used in a scale system before. Yeah, so solid means you're at the standard. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, Minimum. Which, well, not... Not me, so if you're getting solids in every game of the VFL, you're doing you're doing your job. Okay, cool. Yeah. If you want to be in the finals, though, you got to be very good or excellent yeah, in yeah. those categories because yeah, that's that's our distinguishing factor. If you're like a needs attention, yeah, that means that you probably didn't have a great game. Yeah, but then within that, so like decision making wise, to get a to get a solid at VFL level, I think it's like three to five errors. Yeah. in decision making, which could be you paid the wrong free kick. Yeah, you missed a free kick, so you didn't pay anything when you should have. Um, like. Those, those are assessed similarly. So you, but then based on the kind of error, like if it's a major or a minor, so someone's head get, gets ripped off, it's a major free kick, you probably yeah, should have paid it. Yeah. So that then gets graded differently. But So we get we get those competencies as gradings and then we get like two to three points of feedback. Yeah. Um, outside of that, we then get game vision. So yeah. within that two to po- three points of feedback on areas to improve positive things we did, we'll then get those key points 
as part of our game vision at the end. So yep. we'll get like 10 or 12 clips Just usually. Huddle. Yeah, yep. huddle clips. Yep. And it will be, um, if one of the areas to improve was, say, holding the ball for the day, you might get two or three holding the balls. But you just got to think back through the process of what you did. Here's the correct outcome. Here's what you processed. Like, where's the missing link? And it's a lot more positive now in terms of we're trying to help you get better rather yeah. than back in the day it was, well, you just lost all these points, cool. so you're going to get dropped. Yeah. Um, there's still a bit of an element of that. Like, if you're not performing, you you don't get games. But Is there an element because the numbers are so thin that that's hard to implement as well? At do, do our, you think? So uh, at our level, it's still pretty competitive. Yeah. Um, because we're we're at a point where we've got it, we've got more than enough numbers to cover our games. Yeah. Um, some circumstances we have a few injuries, like Cost. it gets a bit tight. Yeah. But there's always someone pushing up. So like our development list, like if we got a lot of senior injuries and guys aren't performing, someone will come up and take a spot. Um, but like at local level, like guys are doing like two, three, four games a weekend because they just don't have the numbers. So it's a, at that level, it's like you could be underperforming but still getting good games. Our level, if you're really underperforming, you just won't be in. Um, so, so there is, like, it does mean a fair bit. Um, and then even more so at the top end, like, we lose, from when I say we lose, the AFL drop down a few guys every week who aren't in the AFL, who are still yeah. running to keep them going. Mm-hmm. Like, for those guys, like, yeah, if they're not performing the AFL, they'll be back in the VFL, which no one, no one wants to be. And the same for us. If we're not yeah. in the VFL and we're in the 18s, like, you want to be in senior footy. Yeah. Um, Just normal team selection. No, normal team selection. Yeah. Normal team selection. Um but, and that, that's where, I mean, like any other team, like, all right, one of your more experienced umpires, maybe if they underperformed a week, they're not going to get instantly dropped because no, no. you back them in to, to recover and go again next week. Um, whereas someone who's a bit younger, typically, actually, something that's been really good from an umpiring sense um, is that really typically, if someone gets promoted, though, someone comes up, generally speaking, you're going to get two games in a row. So even if you have a bad first one, you get the opportunity to redeem yourself the next week, which might still mean you get dropped, but at yeah, least yeah. you get a second crack. And you sort of know that going in. Yeah. Um, very rare that you're one game in, one game out. Not so volatile. Yeah. Where from a playing sense, like you might be, like some of those guys might be the sub one week, come on for a quarter, have a blinder, and then they get dropped. Yeah. 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 Especially ours is a, ours um, a bit different because from a sport yeah. perspective, like cricket comes to mind when that happens. Yeah. 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 It's quite a volatile X's, X's and O's, I guess. Yeah. Or ones and zeros. Yeah. Um, is well, before I go into that, give me your top three, top five. Games, moments that you've been a part of specifically. Number it's one, it's all good yeah. while I talk about this stuff, but I'm I'm imagining for people yeah. not imagining you out in the middle of the ground because yeah, if you do a good job, we don't notice you. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> plain and simple. That, and it's 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 a yeah, it's a really strange feeling because we don't win or lose either. No, so I come off the ground and I know if I've had a good game or you've not. Got no song to sing, but <laughs> well, well, that's that's the thing. And I guess like so, in terms of top three, I'll go three, two, one because. Um, that's what it comes to mind. But three AFLW grand final last year. Yep. Um, the reason that, that sits at three is because the next two games are pretty special. Um, but see, I know this because I know I pay attention now. But prior yeah. to that, not a clue. <laughs> yeah. Um, but yeah, so three AFLW grand final, and interesting. Like part of that is so we flew in on like the Saturday up to Brisbane. We do the game on the Sunday. Come off the field. That's great. We have we have our own sort of pretty quiet sort of celebration in the rooms. We were back on a flight that night, straight back to Melbourne, landed yep. at one thirty in the morning um, on the Sounds Monday familiar. morning. So, <laughs> whereas, like, the players stay on, like, they're celebrating. Even yeah. losing team, we'll go out and do something. Like, yeah. it's, yeah, it's a bit of a different feeling. You come off the ground and go, well, grand final's over. Yeah. Clock out. 
we, we're like we're just wait. We we finish the game. We're just waiting on the interchange bench for the presentations. Like one of one of our umps goes up, collects all the medals, yeah. comes off, and then we just disappear in the rooms. So like yeah. it, like it, it's it's just, when I say it, it's just another game of football. It definitely isn't. But I mean, from a day perspective, doing a grand final is always special. Yeah. But it's one of those ones that yeah, it's it's not like playing where like you are like you ha- you have a bad day and you're like I didn't really feel it. Yeah, like you know, emotionally, it's like you just sort of move on to the next one. And all right, why why do we have a bad day or why do we have a good day? Going yeah, to the you've next, got to have an absolute howler to remember yeah. it. I can imagine. Yeah. Um, number two, I didn't actually umpire in, but I was on the bench for. Um, I was on the bench for the Jamie Elliott goal. Yep. against uh, Essendon. That I was. I think I saw you on camera that game. If you watch. They played at Brownlow night, and I got yeah. really excited. If you watch the rever- the reverse angle of that goal, that yeah, you, you just see the, the bench. Of it. <laughs> I'm standing on the bench because obviously siren goes. So as the emergency umpire on the bench, our job is to make sure the guys no stay leaves, off yeah. the ground. Because um, if they run on, like, like all hell breaks loose. <laughs> Particularly as well if the game's not officially over yet. Yeah, which happened in a W game. So it wasn't a game I was part of, but it happened. It was a mess. Um, but I'm on the bench, like trying to keep the Collingwood boys back because they obviously know. All right, if he kicks it. Yeah, we're, we're just going to go here. <laughs> um, and then trying to keep the Essendon, Essendon team and staff and, like, you, you got, like, 30 or 40 people you're trying to keep off the ground. There's yeah, one no one you. sees you in that moment either. No. Nah. And then, I mean, you've got, like, I can't remember what the crowd was that day, but it was, like, 60, 65-plus thousand at the G. Hell of a game. Like, Bombers played out of their skin. Colin probably didn't play great, but, like, came back in. He kicks that goal and it just goes nuts. Yep. And you're like, yeah, this is pretty cool can't take um, a step back and go yeah yeah I was here for that which which I mean like it's pretty cool going and watching those games and like I've definitely been in the stands like watching good games of footy but to be on the ground being like immersed in that moment and then just having a bulk group of people rush past you and being like that like that's a pretty cool so one of those movie scenes where you're just kind of standing there and 100% <laughs> like that just that like 30 second period and I mean even the lead up play to that you could see it happening from a mile yeah. away sitting on the bench yeah. um, and I've got game I've got the game clock right next to me so I know exactly how long yeah. it's left it's a nice thing isn't it uh, yeah. that's what I find of the AFLW games is like when I sit there I can yeah. see how much time's left and yep. it's a nice power position for me to have <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's pretty it's pretty cool but then I'm calmed up as well so on the bench we're all calmed up ready to go just in case Yeah. so I can hear what the guys are saying to the players on the ground I can hear them setting like Jamie Elliott up telling him to go wider in the boundary line Get on his correct line. Get in the second row. Yeah. yeah, like, so you're fully you're fully immersed in it. You're not just another spectator. Like you're right in the game. Yeah. Um. So that was pretty cool in terms of just experience of what that feels like. Um. Number one though was coming on at halftime, uh, round ten, Geelong, Gold Coast, twenty twenty one. Yep. Um. I actually watched that game. For some reason, I was watching that game. Man. <laughs> I don't know why. I don't know. Might be a good luck charm. I don't know. Oh, maybe, maybe. <laughs> um. But. Yeah, it, it officially counts as my AFL debut, my one yep. and only. Yeah. Um, so hey, it if, still counts. If we, if we never You're make an AFL umpire now, if mate. We, if we never make it any further, I hold the record for the only person ever to Shortest wear the number, amount of time. number 48 <laughs> on an AFL field, um, which is an exceptionally high number for an umpire. But um, yeah, I, I rem- like that was an unreal experience. Cause, was it a hammy? Uh, no, it was a calf. Calf, yeah. So I umpired the VFL the night before down at Frankston. Yeah. Um, ran 18.5K, nine, 19K. Go uh, Dolphs. Go Dolphs. Um, <laughs> I don't know if they got up, actually. I, I couldn't tell you. Um, hell of a game, though, because it was like 35-minute quarters, like around like 18 and a half, 19K. Um, got home at, I don't know, 12.30, 1 o'clock in the morning. Yeah. Like, wake up, got a one one ten game down Geelong. Yeah. Sitting on the bench, and I go, cool, I'm just going to go 
sit down. Feet up, um, have some lollies. Fu- funnily enough, so I, was, <laughs> I like, you, you go down, like, all right, cool. Guys are feeling really good. Like, not a problem. Just, like, I carpooled with one of the other boys and we were just, like, chatting about it. And he's just like, oh, you'd, you'd hate to get on today, wouldn't you? And I'm like, no, come on. I'm like, not now a chance. These, these three guys, like, they're fit, they're fine. First quarter, one of the boys goes, oh, yeah, calf's not feeling great. And I was like, cool. Like, to be completely honest, this happens regularly yeah, where yeah, guys yeah. say, and, and it's... For them, communicate. for those guys to come off the ground, it needs to be pretty serious because when I say they don't really want to put us on as like being rookie listed, they don't really want to have to put us under the pump like that, having a, done a game the day before. Yeah. Half time of that game, Gold Coast were only down by like eight points. Yeah. So like it's a, it's a tight game at that point. I mean, Geelong blew them out after that. But <laughs> in terms of like, they don't want to have to put us in that situation. They don't want to like let the game down as a result of someone coming on fatigued and like who knows like I could come on and cramp or whatever like yeah all sorts of issues we get to half time we go in the rooms the the other bikes Danny's calf gets on a bike spinning up our head our newly appointed head coach was the game day coach that day um he comes in the rooms and goes oh just warm up just in case like you get asked to warm up every couple of times you sit the bench cuz you never know yeah warm up at half time we go back out. I'm still in the tracksuit. Walk out behind the guys. It's all good. They get to the middle of the ground. Takes two steps, and he just says on the comms, "He's like, no, nah. I'm done." <laughs> At that point, I don't like. That's probably the f- the first real time in my umpiring career where Is that a stomach drop moment. Yeah, yeah. I was physically like, yep, shaking, going, "It's actually happening here." Yeah. And the worst when I say the worst part about it was I'm in the middle of GMHBA, so I got and like. Our phones get locked away like an hour and a half before the game. You can't tell. Anyone. I can't tell anyone that yeah. I'm about to go on. Yeah. So my parents had no idea. My family had no yeah, idea. I remember, I remember. And it was just a mad scramble. I remember Maddie's of like, post, maybe. Yeah, I think she put up a post about it. Yeah. Yeah, my girlfriend posted, and then um, it was just a mad scramble of like people sending text messages. Like all the all the boys who had umpiring VFL that day had no idea, so yep. they're like jumping on their phones, going, "What the hell's going on?" I'm sitting there in the middle of GMHBA, pants from my ankles like match kit on underneath, but I couldn't get my tracksuit over my boots. <laughs> so I'm there, pants around my ankles, boots the old, everywhere. The button, button on. I've got, I've got a match, our matchcom guy, because our um, vests get hooked up to broadcast and us. Mm-hmm. So I've got my shirt up like this. Like if you're listening to this, it's not going to make any sense. But I've got my <laughs> shirt up, pants around my ankles. We can imagine. He's, That's he's all. trying to switch, switch it all so it stays permanently on rather than click on, click off. And then I'm like, I actually have to umpire here. And so they're like, oh, like park yourself down one end for the first couple of minutes, warm yourself up, and then get into the game when you feel ready. Came into the game, like, first first stint in the middle. It was a pretty surreal thing because you go into – I had a boundary throw in. I remember it so clear. You go ask the nominations for the rucks. And, like, Tom Hawkins is coming in. We've got Joel Selwood there. Yeah. Like, all these guys that I've grown up watching on TV play football, you're now in and amongst that. And it's not a practice. Like, this is a live game, AFL footy. Yeah. Um, so it's that also was also a cool. great visually appealing ground to be at too, GMHB. When you stand in the middle, you go, yeah, this is cool. Especially now with the new stand. Yeah. Was the new stand done? Uh, no, no. No. Nah, so this was, yeah, this was before they even knocked it down. So it was yeah. the old stand. Yeah. Um, but yeah, it was a pretty, pretty unreal feeling. Um, and then I only had to pay one free kick for the day and I got it correct. It's a really <laughs> obvious holding the man. Um, bounced at 100%. I had three bounces. All three went straight up. So, yep. again, if I retire, I've done one AFL game and I'm efficient. Yeah, I bounced at 100%. So, efficient. the best bouncing record in the yep. history of the AFL. Um, it was just really it was just really cool. You're going to pay for that one later. Yeah. <laughs> yeah 100%. 100%. But, George, right, we'll George take, will clip it. We'll, we'll, we'll take it. But, yeah, it was 
that that's by far. I mean, you set out to want to umpire AFL footy yeah. at like age fifteen or sixteen when I was like, all right, I can see this progression here. Like, I want to try and see how far we can go, and then to be what uh, 10, 10 or eleven years later, out on an AFL ground, yeah, actually umpiring an AFL, a live AFL game. Yes, it was only a half, but I mean, pretty like pretty ridiculous to sort of like think think about it afterwards. Um, and it just went by so quick. Like yeah, I got, that was that was the fastest half of football, like in terms of perception of time. Um, physically, actually, much easier than the night before. Well, you, know, you know where the ball's going. Like yeah, the be- you're also the best hyped up on two hundred milligram oh, of adrenaline. <laughs> I, I had so much running through, um, and they were like, "Oh, you ran really well. Like you recovered really well." I'm like, "I actually don't know how." Cut my feet, I did but it. anyway, yeah, yeah, I was real sore the next day. Um, but then, just from a timing perspective as well, like the like the thing after that. So they were going to give me the week off the next week from running completely because they're like, "You've just done two, like one and a half full full games." Yeah. They were going to fly me to Dar- they were going to fly me to Darwin to sit the bench just as a bit of a nice like. Well yep. done, like bit of reward. Melbourne went to lockdown on the yeah. on the Thursday, yeah, sure. so I got a phone. I, I didn't even get a phone call. I got an email saying you're not on the flight anymore because we don't know if we can get you home. Yep. Um. So it went from this massive high to then I actually don't know when I'm going to umpire. Two week holiday. Well, v- <laughs> VFL dissipated as soon as we went to lockdowns. So that stopped. Yeah, done. Yeah. Um. Couldn't. Well, it wasn't in any AFL game, so I, I then didn't umpire actually for a couple of weeks. Yeah. So it was this really weird sort of feeling, but yeah, that's by far career highlight. What's where you're at now? And, well, I know where you're at, but where you're at now and the second coming off that, what do you need to do to get back to that? Yeah, so right now, going back into another VFL season, <laughs> um, came off AFLW last year. Um, obviously, we had two seasons last year. Um, yeah, season six, fun. season seven. Don't remind me. That was a hell of a 12-month period. Yeah, don't remind um, me. Yeah, so went through that. Season six wasn't great for me. Got injured. Um, first major, first only real injury of my career. Um which then meant I missed the first nine weeks of AFL, which really hurt me from a selection perspective. Yep. So I was going really well with 2021. Um, how, had I been able to put together a full VFL season last year, would have been very close. Yep. Um, phone call didn't go my my way end of the year in terms of promotion. Um, so it was actually, in terms of timing, in hindsight, I was starting to get to a point in the year where I went, it's been a hard year because I got injured. So I haven't been umpiring a lot. Yep. Did 10 rounds of AFL, VFL final, had to go straight. The, the next week, I got, I got a phone call on the Monday saying, yep, you didn't make it to week two of VFL finals. Like, you basically needed a miracle because you did ten, you did half the season. Like, yeah, yeah, yeah. We, you, you needed something pretty good to happen. I was like, yeah, fair enough. Um, the next morning, I got a phone call saying, you're on a flight to Perth to go and umpire AFLW. Yeah. Um, so, again, this sort of like roller coaster of ups and downs. Um, but leading into, I think it was the last round would have been, yeah, round 10 of AFLW. Had the Friday night at Icon Park, Carlton Bulldogs. The day before, I got a phone call saying I wasn't getting promoted yeah, to the AFL. Rough. So that that was pretty rough. Um, so having had what I thought was maybe enough um, uh, of a year and going to four ump in the AFL next year meant there was quite a few spots More up spots, for grabs. Yeah. Um, so that was pretty disappointing. But in terms of opportunity now, it's, it's just get back in and just have a full VFL season. Um, yeah. So that's sort of where I'm at. And not to say as long as I have a good season, I'm going to go up, but yeah, yeah. it's the type of thing. It's like, it just gives me more of an opportunity. Continuity. Co- continuity, get a full season. But then I, I sort of look at it a bit selfishly for me and go, a lot of those guys that I would have normally been competing against did get promoted. Yeah. So I'm sort of moving up in terms of the order anyway. Um, yeah. A lot of old guys at the AFL who've been around forever. Yeah. Um, 
there's going to be opportunity. Um, just got to sort of do my time a little bit, but um, plenty like plenty of good stuff in this next twelve months. Like I'll tick over fifty VFL games, I think around five or six, which is pretty cool. Nice. Um, so yeah, sort of an interesting sort of phase, but yeah, to get to that next level, realistically, it's just like get some really good footy over the next um, the next six to twelve months. A lot of it's then out of your hands. I mean, yep. if they want to pick you, they want to pick you. Um, yep. Which, yeah, I'm heading in the right direction. I just got to get a little bit more consistent and yep. have a good year. What's before we dive down more sports science things? Mm-hmm. What's what's a normal week look like? What's a preseason week look like? What's an in season week look like? Or game day week? Yeah, so preseason at the moment, a um, lot of conditioning. <laughs> well, that's just normal anyway. Define so, a lot. <laughs> Um, I'm running. I actually had a look the other day. On average, I'm about. You some looking at data? Oh, shock me! <laughs> shock me! <laughs> Especially my running data. What a surprise! Yeah, who would have thought? Um, who would have thought? Um, running about forty to fifty k's mm-hmm. each week across um, four sessions. Yeah, four heading into five sessions mm-hmm. this week will be the first time I do five. Um, so that's just running. Generally, then have a bike. Uh, bike session, just a steady state bike, just as a bit of a break the week up, go out for a coffee shop ride yep. um, on a on a weekend. Got to swim in there and then three three lifts at the moment plus like a field session, which is a bit of change direction stuff. Um, so pretty busy week. Um, I'm like in terms of what that looks like, it's Monday, Wednesday, Friday lift, uh, Tuesday, Thursday, Friday, Sunday run, yep. Saturday bike, Wednesday swim after lift and then... Tuesday or Thursday, depending on what my working week looks like with that field yep. session. Once we then get in season, um, ours, ours is a bit, when I say a bit all over the place, because we then start getting a bit dictated by what the clubs do. Yeah. So we'll go back. We're actually going back first week of Feb uh, as a VFL group. So we'll start training together. Icon? Uh, no, we're at uh, Victoria Park for VFL. Yeah. Yep. We go back as a group um, beginning of Feb. Tuesday, Thursday nights is our main conditioning nights. So yep. we'll do our running based stuff and then we'll do some when I say skills like we're not going around kicking footies we do sometimes but we're more looking at it from setting it up yeah, but there's from a reason you're perspective because yeah. you can't kick footy so you'd be surprised we <laughs> snip it around we're pretty <laughs> bloody good that's just one um, of those shivs I like to just twist yeah, yeah. <laughs> no we, we we fly it around um, we quite often say we get we get a game in the 18s we wouldn't get a game in VFL <laughs> footy we get a game in the 18s as like 25, 26 year olds um, but yeah so we have our key, key nights and then Depending on what happens during the week, so we'll start going out and doing we call them club visits. Yep. So we'll come out and it might be a, a lighter session yep. with the club going through some new rules. Um, yeah, fun I'll, nights because everyone asks a thousand questions. Yeah, which is which is great. Like that's what we're there for. Like we we go into those wanting to help. Yeah, we've, clubs we've had a few come down and everyone just asks some questions. You can see yeah. they're just getting worse. <laughs> yeah, and, and like that, that's that, it's a type of it's thing. It's a it's good like, and bad place to be. Yeah, yeah. some sometimes it's good. Um, but then from a conditioning sense our week is dictated by what happens in those like you, yeah. from a club perspective if you guys decide nah we're doing couple, like we're doing three 15 minute match sim blocks yeah. that's a very different conditioning load to us just coming down answering some questions and yeah. doing a little drill <laughs> yeah. so we then have to adjust and shift to that obviously when practice matches start coming in that's our main conditioning on the weekend and it like realistically we end up looking a bit more like what a footy club might look like yeah. except our additional sessions instead of being skill sessions or whatever are looking at vision, assessing decision-making stuff, and then just some general conditioning to just keep things ticking along. Um, and then that really carries through throughout the rest of the season. Yeah, cool. Yeah. Is, if you were in charge, is there a change you would make? Knowing from a sports science background, because you're probably, yeah, I it, don't know what the other 
jobs that umpires have, but I'm sure you are a little bit more informed than some others. Yeah. There's no, I'm just stereotyping that. I don't really know, but... Oh, no. It's like, there's definitely moments where I go, I probably, I probably wouldn't have done that. Yeah. Having said that, though... Do you have to get over that hurdle yourself or do you just you trust? Early on I did. Yeah. But then I'm more in a p- position now where I go, I'm here to train. I'm here as an athlete. Yeah. An old soul. Not not necessarily, it's not my responsibility to worry about that. But handing off the responsibility of programming and all that has, is actually really good. It's a nice weight off your shoulders too. I can just come in and just focus on what I need to do. Um. Yes, there's some things I might agree or disagree with, but at the same time, there's a lot of biases that I have with my own training because I, I have that next level comparative to the average in terms of physiologically, what are we doing in this session? Yeah. I also then really know physiologically how that matches up with my own athletic profile. Yeah. So I know going into it, I'm like, this session's going to suck. Yeah. But it's not going to suck for everyone, but I know it's going to suck for me because of where I'm at and yeah. what I'm good and not so good at. Yeah. So getting past some of that and going, well, no, I understand what we're trying to achieve from a programming sense here. Um, like there's definitely times where I'll have conversations around like more so just trying to understand how someone else is programming. I think that's a really useful tool. Yeah. Um, but Which makes up a large proportion. Pavor- yeah. portion of the decision making anyway yeah. it's just our own biases or the way that we like to do things 100% and I mean also from a side of things that my professional work is in a very different physiological profile to what I actually train and compete for myself Yeah, um, I'm not going out there and doing a four hour plus event yeah. every week like yes it's two hours but it's intermittent there's a change direction it's very different, like, very different demands um, so that's where I'm more than happy to trust someone who's got more experience from a professional sense in that setting um, but more than anything, it's like, I just want to go and train. Yeah. Like, I just want to be an athlete for a bit. Yep. Which is why you've just hired... Athletes who? Authority. Yeah, yeah, so... Yeah, so fi- finally was like, I need an S&C coach. Yep. Like, the conditioning stuff, I still have a lot of control of, particularly this time of year. Um, but even then, I've sort of said, like, I just need someone to set it out. Yep. I'll come in and put some input in, like any athlete wouldn't be like, oh, Correct. like, yeah. can we try this, whatever. But just handle that responsibility off um because like it's the last thing you want to get to sometimes at the end of the week is all right i've written programs for however many athletes for this week or this month i've gone in just done a bunch of testing recommendations all of that type of stuff at work on oh, now i have to write my own program for next week yeah and it's like like you you got biases you take shortcuts i'm like nah, i just want someone to tell me what to do. i'll come in and get it done yeah um challenge me but and i'll challenge you back but like yeah again Scrap that responsibility. And that's been really good. Like, I don't reckon I've trained for quite some time this well, particularly in this sort of off-season, pre-season-y block. Yeah. Um, and recovered really well and got as much total volume in for quite some time, um, purely because I know that if I don't, like, I'm booking in going, I'm going to be at the gym at 6am on a Monday morning. Woke up this morning, I was like, if I wasn't, like, if someone wasn't not on my back about it, but if I don't feel... Um, you don't have If I'm doing it myself, so, like... Yeah. I'm probably waking up this morning going, mm, now I'll sleep in a bit more. Yeah. Whereas it's like, no, this morning I, I got up and it's like, I just got to get there. I just got to get do- get it done. Yeah. Um, which has been great. What are the, some of the uh, blind spots they've covered in your training that you, one, didn't see or chose not to address? I reckon a lot of it's just taking taking my strength programming to a better level. Yeah. Like I, I know enough, but I don't work, I just don't work in it. Yeah. Um, 
so that that side of things in terms of being a bit more creative with what that looks like um, has made it more interesting. Even the last little while, like I've never really properly front squatted for any just length about of time for you too, which was kind of weird. But yeah, anyway. <laughs> um, but like my entire last block was front squat. Yeah, and like I've never really sort of had that as an emphasis or a focus. Um, but last block been really really good, and then even just the like trusting that someone knows that. Like from a load perspective, like going into the gym and knowing, right, I feel confident enough to lift heavy today because it's not going to be an issue rather yeah. than me sort of calf questioning out going, well, I know it's probably going to be all right, but have I actually got the balance right? It's just, again, palm off responsibility. But yeah. like I know to, like to this morning, for example, it's like I go in, I do a reasonably heavy lift. I know I'm going to be fine to run tomorrow, which previously I'd never, re- I'd, I'd be questioning that. Yeah. And so, nah, I'll just go a bit easier in the gym today. Whereas like, a pretty solid program. So a lot of that side, um, which probably also came from getting injured last year and going, what I was previously doing wasn't enough. Yeah. Um, so that's been a major one. Out, outside of that, then really not, nothing. That, that's probably the biggest part. It's just yeah. like strength, power, speed development just isn't what I do for a job. Yeah. So find someone who's really good at that and get them to fill the gap. Yeah. What's What have you enjoyed most about it besides... Uh, being able to kind of release control of it probably just the confidence of pushing a bit harder yeah like i i've well like i said very rarely if any front squat ever um my favorite i built the front squat but like i so like what to uh, last week hit 67 and a half yeah for what fours yeah i think um which I'd never got anywhere close to. But again, it's one of those things that at this time of year I would have gone, oh, yeah, I need, I know I need to go heavy, but like, oh, I don't want to really be too sore. Yeah, and it's, um, it's one of those things that is like, as we know with strength training, like it's an accumulation to X. Yeah. Like if you try and do that session in six weeks time after not having done anything for five and a half weeks, then yeah, it's going to yeah. hurt. But yeah. the consistency, and we'll come back to continuity again, of being able to do it and not have to think about it necessarily, just yeah. turn up and do it, yeah. makes you better in the long run. Yeah. And I guess... I mean, sp- speaking from here, from Virtus' point of view, like lots of people have just come off Christmas holidays, um, New Year's, everything like that. And, yep. you know, you have a little hiatus from the gym. And that's what I've been saying. Well, I find myself saying a lot in the last kind of two or three weeks is, yeah, the first session is going to hurt. It's, yep. You haven't lost anything. It's just your body's ability to adapt to the stimulus has just changed slightly. Yep. So it's going to hurt. Yeah. You'll be fine yep. after it. You're going to yeah, get you'll some be, dumps. You'll be okay. But Pretty like, much suck it up. You're going to be okay. Yeah. It's just this little period that you got to get through. Yeah. Um, but no, that's been that's been really good, um, and then ultimately that's like just fed back into running again. I mean, I was pretty when I say I was pretty cooked after the last twelve months because it was a long twelve months. Like, yes, I wasn't umpiring a lot, but just the emotional and mental, mental strain load. of going. Yeah. Well, like, and this, this insight into the umpiring world. I was driving to see my own physio because that was the only like if I'd rocked up to training on a Tuesday night, we've got seventy five, eighty of us yeah. at training, one physio. Yeah. Gross. So you're waiting, mate. I, I waited uh, an hour to see a physio yeah. one night, um, just to check in to make sure that things weren't going backwards. Yeah. Um, and in the end, didn't see the physio, so I booked my own appointment outside of that. Yeah. Um. So like, I was driving. Like, I live like Bayside Way. I was driving to Heidelberg every Wednesday for like ten weeks to go see a physio. Yeah. Um. Plus, then going into the city twice to go to training, even though I wasn't technically training. Yeah. I was doing my rehab. Um. Like all of that, I was just cooked, and then just trying to come into a, a VFL men's season, having done no preseason, yeah, and work, um, yeah, and, and work, and, and be a good partner, 
yeah, and got COVID through that, and like all, all the other things Still that just add yet up. Had it yet? Yeah, <laughs> lucky you. Built um, different, but yeah, like I just got to the end of last year, and I was like, I'm just wrecked. But yeah, like, I feel amazing now, um, and it's only really been a month since, or just over a month since I actually technically finished this the season. Yeah, um, I feel you, and I th- I'm, I'm sure if I feel the same way, you know, I'm not an elite athlete anymore. No surprises, of course, but. <laughs> Just like the whole, I mean, obviously for the last two, two and a half years, like the mental load and strain of just living, I guess, like takes it out more than what you think. And I'm in the similar 100%. boat recently of being pretty quiet for the last kind of four to six weeks. And like, I don't think I realized that I, I didn't feel cooked or exhausted in the moment. And even looking back now, I still feel like I cope with it okay. But now having playing golf three times a week, you know. I'm a, it's not a bad lifestyle. It's not a bad lifestyle. And like, <laughs> I, I guess that part of it, like that's filling the void of like an escape that I didn't get the opportunity to have, which yeah. I think people underrate yeah. like highly. Yeah. And even just little things like spending some, you know, time down the beach, like having a bit of a paddle around, you know, anything like that. Like it's one of those things that I think we get exposed to it more during a holiday or Christmas, New Year, January period that yeah. I d- think we miss from February to November, if we just want to generalize and call yeah. it that, which I think takes, takes a bigger, bigger toll and pushing you in the right direction more often than not that I don't know if there's a way that we can bring it back to that by the way that we can kind of tick those boxes or do those little things more often in the middle of the year that helps yep. us not feel so bad at the end of the year. I don't know. It was just something I was thinking about the other day. Yeah. Uh, which uh, I don't know how you do that, but yeah, yeah. I don't, I don't think there's ever a, a perfect answer to it, but, no. but yeah, I mean just getting, well, apart from anything, I just like setting up, even just setting up the good, ha- like little habits, like, so I've gotten to this routine now where it's like, because I'm lifting three days a week and like Monday, Wednesday, I'm, I was like, you know, I've got the option to lift later in the day. Yeah. Let's lift at 6am because I know I have to work. Oh, 100%. Oh, I know I have to I'm work 6am. But I know I have to work 6am on a Tuesday and a Thursday commonly. Yeah. So now instead of being like, oh, now I'll sleep in a bit here and there, it's just like, no, I have this really consistent like yeah. sleep routine just as a byproduct of the fact that I'm getting up and training. It just makes you feel days. better for the day too. So everything else is now snowballing out of the fact yeah. that I've like got this good so consistency. More, so many more hours in the day too. 100%. Like yeah. I'm a huge advocate for morning training. You feel awesome. Yeah, you? I can't. Yeah. Not anymore. I mean, I don't know how I used to do it. Like yeah. drove up in the city three, four times a week for cricket. Like I don't know how I used nah. to do that after school. Like nah. Especially now. Like you start at, well, I start my day at 6 a.m. Yep. Every day besides Monday. Um, that's... And I get to Monday and I'm like, you know what? I think I just want to get up early today. Yeah. And like not knowing me and like I do my programs on a Sunday and it still takes me X amount of hours and I still finish at, you know, stupid o'clock. But I get up early on a Monday. Like this morning I went for a walk. Didn't really do much. Just kind of like no phone time. And I was like, you know, I feel way better. This is great. Getting to like Thursday, for example, I start a little bit later and I get to get up kind of 7.30. I'm like, I feel like shit. That's that's the bit that like I don't necessarily like looking forward to going back as a group to train is like we have like I have to run Tuesdays and Thursdays yeah. at night in the city after being in the car for an hour we then yeah. sit in a coaching room for an hour and then we have to warm up and try and run yeah and we have to it's run hard gross. so it's like that that for me it's like it, the one of the motivating factors to get to the AFL is they have a yeah. much more flexible <laughs> schedule they can train when they like yeah um so but yeah that that's probably the part that over the next well heading into next month, that'll be that'll be a bit sort of frustrating and sort of break that routine a bit. But then once I've got that okay, then it's kind of like, all right, we just change and adjust. Yep. Um, it's just a new new way of going about it. Excellent. Uh, before we touch on nutritional strategies, we uh, give me a little insight into 
your experiences in the US and maybe a little bit of Mets as well, like that yep. sports science side of Nick. What, what did Michigan show you or open your eyes to that you didn't have previously, especially being over here? It's still quite a youthful uh, industry, but also yep. like kind of what's your life look like at Mets? Who do you look after? What's a week look like? How do you work that in with your own training, your own life? Um, but I guess, yeah, start on Michigan and then we'll work towards Mets and we'll wrap it up. Yeah, so Michigan was uh, Michigan was a while ago, now, 2016. Um, that came about just as a trying to get experience in the industry. Yeah. Um, and at that point in time, I de- definitely did want to be a traditional S&C working on yeah. the gym floor. Um, but that was also the biggest turning point in terms of understanding that that's probably not what I actually wanted to do day in, day out. Um, and learnt through being there as well that the conditioning side was definitely something I was more interested in. So... That was a, like, when I say semi-internship, I wasn't there for a full semester because it clashed with a footy season. So yep. um, I was at a point where initially I was actually going to go to Iowa. They wanted me to go in August and go for a full um, full semester. Glad I didn't because in the end I did the Tack Cup granny that year, yep. um, which is a famous one because a, a Marty yeah. <laughs> kick, kick misses the goal after Missed, the song. Yeah, exactly. um, so... Another clip that I'm in the background of. I'm standing right behind him. But in terms of uh, in terms of heading over there, that was with Olympic sports, so everything but football and basketball. Mm-hmm. Um, I met Jim Harbaugh's dad. That was exciting. <laughs> Who's that for God. anyone who has oh, no idea? So like Jim, <laughs> Jim Harbaugh was the, the we're coach, not all the, Michigan fanatics. Like no, you. he's the coach in Michigan, but he co- he coached the 49ers in the NFL, yeah. and his brother coaches at Baltimore, and yeah. Um, didn't meet him, but he met his dad, who's also <laughs> like a very famous name, particularly Michigan. Um, yeah. But yeah, so that was a really just interesting experience in terms of how they go about it over there in terms of athletic development performance. Yep. Um, seeing their facilities and like I guess just the resources that they have. Space. Um, un- yeah, un- <laughs> unbelievable. I went back a few years later and they built a new facility. It was like $350 million. Crazy. Absurd. Um, someone just donated the money too. Oh, like, that's dumb. Um, but yeah, basically like five, five days a week, some occasional Saturdays, but Monday to Friday, it was 6 a.m. till 8 p.m. Yep. Like, get in. It's lifts, like, first thing in the morning, and then you'll go and do your conditioning blocks with teams mid-afternoon and then come back and then more teams lifting in the afternoon. Yep. Good exposure to sports I hadn't been involved in as well. Like, I did a lot of work with softball, lacrosse, things that you just don't really get here. Um, but that's where largely, like, going and doing, being in the gym and doing the lifting stuff, like, learn a lot there. But, again, that was something that really sort of went, oh, this just isn't. Like going over, I was like, yeah, cool. I want, I want to like, maybe one day go and work in the college or whatever. I was like, maybe I'll go back and work there, but just not in that role. Yep. Um, you go out and do the conditioning sessions though. And I go, this is so much more enjoyable. This is much more what I want to do. Like on paper for a lot of people, it probably goes, oh, that's probably the lazy, boring programming side of things. It's like just guys running up and back to cones or whatever. It's like, no, the in-depth part behind it as to why we're doing it. It's the, yep. the part that makes me interested. But then also I just saw the opportunity there too because over in the US, like they very, really good coaches, really yeah. good strength coaches. I think you probably and then the extrapolate the, that to and, a lot of the world. And the conditioning is just like, what are you doing? Yeah, strength and conditioning, my ass. Yeah, you're a strength <laughs> coach. Strength or conditioning. And you're, yeah, so I was so that, that sort of started that, I guess, progression of me coming back and almost like for a while I was like, identifying myself as a conditioning and strength coach in my own head, like publicly, but in my own head, because it was like, that's what I'm really good at. That's what I enjoy. Apart from anything, that's the type of stuff that I largely train as well, even in an sense. So then like, but I mean, learnt a lot, 
Um, even just going and I mean, at that point, I was still living at home. So like going and living somewhere completely different, having a fend yep. for myself, learn a lot out of that. There's nothing tying you back here necessarily yeah. to either. Yeah. Um, so that was a really sort of interesting, good experience. And then, yeah, coming back, it sort of set me up to have a bit better perspective on yep. right, being being a bit more resourceful too. It's like, I don't have all the stuff that we had there now. Yeah. Um, don't have the luxury of just going, all right, what equipment do I need and all that? Like 600 barbells. Try and learn to be a bit more creative. <laughs> yeah, try and learn to be a bit more creative. Um, but then also just sort of chase that opportunity from a conditioning side of things, yeah. which then led to inevitably met. Um, so Luke and I actually met through umpiring. Yeah. He, he got to state league level and I rip into him about it. It's like, I've gone past <laughs> I'm him. Better than you, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I'm sure he likes that. Yeah. Um, but yeah, he, oh, he always just turns around and goes, oh, I retired early, retired yeah, yeah. early. Like, yeah, come <laughs> on, mate. Up. Um, but yeah, from a from a Met side of things, he was starting everything up and sort of went, oh, like, you're interested in coming over doing some VO2 max testing. We sort of start up a bit of a lab, work with triathletes, runners. And I was like, fits this conditioning thing that I'm really interested in yeah. um, perfectly. And also it's flexible. Like he understands yeah. what I do from an umpiring sense, yeah. which that's always been the hardest bit in terms of the industry is finding things that are – like I, I was coming through uni, I could never do a placement because I was already at VFL level at that point. I couldn't do a placement in a footy club. Yeah, I found that. Because availability, I couldn't do it because they're like, oh, we want Tuesday, Thursday nights and then we want a weekend. I'm yeah. like, well, I train <laughs> Tuesday, Thursday nights and no, I don't know where I'm going on the weekend. There's no adaptability. Um, but then also it's a conflict of interest. Like yeah. if I go out on the weekend and I've got, I don't know, Sandringham Dragons and Oakley Chargers, but I'm working at Oakley during the week. Like, yeah, you just can't do it. Um, so that then limited me largely in terms of what I couldn't couldn't do from a work perspective, and that's where, you know, Mets was perfect because it's like I've got this opportunity where I can go and explore the conditioning stuff and really sort of take it whatever direction I end up wanting to do. At that point, like, even Luke didn't really fully know where the business was going to go. I mean, do any um, of us know where any of the business is going to go? Not really. Coming from experience, and yeah. not in a hostile way. Yeah. No one knows what we're doing. Lucky yeah. he just walked in the he's room. So in. He's not going to hear us, which is nah. not going to matter. <laughs> oh, Nick was just discussing that he has he had no idea where Mets was going, and I said, we still don't know where we're going, so, you know. It's not, it's not, a, bad, not a bad spot to be in. <laughs> but um, yeah so that, that sort of gave me the license to sort of do what I wanted to do professionally but then keep this umpiring thing going yep. um, which has then worked out really really well so as I said rather start largely it's now a lot of endurance ultra endurance yep. and that that's probably gone from having just a more broader like I want to be working in the conditioning space like coupled in with some of the lab testing and the, the physiological testing bringing all that together but now more so it's really refined into not exclusively, but I write programs and things like that for a lot of different endurance type athletes. But almost exclusively, my the guys I coach really closely are long course triathlon. Mm-hmm. Like that's seventy point three Ironman. That like that's where I want to spend the bulk of my time. That's where I like doing the research in and really going in depth with the other yeah. stuff's enjoyable. But like really niche now, it's like long course triathlons. What I want to work in for a long time. Yep. What's what's of the niche aspect in interest you about that? Everything changes after three hours. Yep. And and this is probably where we can maybe lead into like the nutrition side, but it's yep. like you That's kind of where I was going. A lot like tri- <laughs> triathlon is a progression, um, in terms of pathway. Like most people will go and do like a sprint distance or a short distance try. They build up to an Olympic distance, they build up to a seventy point three and then they might go and do like an Ironman. Yep. Um What's the difference between those just before you go? So, that? so a sprint distance, com- like sprint distance can change General, a bit, but commonly yeah. a sprint distance is something like a 500 meter swim, 20k bike, and then a 5k run. 
Yep. Olympic distance, as it says, is what they do at the Olympics. Yep. Um, usually a 1500 swim, most of the time 1500, 40k bike, and then a 10k run. Yep. 70.3 is now considered long course. Mm-hmm. So short course is Olympic and less. Long course is 70.3. So that's a half, half Ironman, so a 1.8 or 1.9k swim, 90k's on the bike and a half marathon. Yep. And then an Ironman, a full distance, is a 3.8k swim, 180k's on the bike, and then a marathon. Yep. Um, so... Yeah, it's like it's a, it's a pretty ridiculous. Like the average age grouper in the full distance is somewhere between usually ten to thirteen hours. Yeah. Um, the pro guys are eight eight and less. Yeah. Um, which is absurd because you think about what that actually outputs to be. Um, one of my guys end of last year, um, came fourth in the professional field, ran a two forty eight marathon. Gross. After doing <laughs> one hundred and eighty on the bike, yeah. and he came fourth. Knowing so what like, the feeling is like coming off a bike on a run too, like that. Just yeah. Freaks yep. me out. Well, I mean, the, the benchmark from an amateur runner's perspective, most amateurs, it's like if you're a pretty decent runner, want to try and run a sub three hour marathon. Yeah. Yep. Like these guys are doing that after doing 180 on the bike and yeah. after doing 3.8k Six swim. hours of work, yeah. Like it, it's it's a ridiculous type of event, but that's what makes it so interesting for me. Yep. The other part of it is as well, is like we just don't know enough. Like the research is nowhere near advanced as it is in say football or strength science yep. or like... Look at the explosion, like velocity-based training over the last while. Like lots yeah. of research coming out. Yeah. How do you research anything unless I force someone to be in my lab for <laughs> six, six hours, hours on a yeah. bike and then I start testing them? Yeah. Like it's hard to recruit, but then also like I can't test the mid-race. Yeah, your pool is tiny and your availability for someone to do that just because they want to. But like even if you go, all right, I'm going to test some things from a race perspective, like the rules of the race state, there's no outside assistance. Like yeah. you get the aid stations on course, but like I can't go just take a lactate sample yeah, 100k into the bike while they're racing because yeah. apart from anything they're going like 44k an hour yeah. but then like we just I can't go in because it's outside assistance so they're DQ'd so yeah. from a research perspective there's not a lot there and that's the part that I go there's a lot of opportunity in the space but also the exciting part is like you kind of got to figure stuff out you got to work your own shit out and create your own research yeah. kind of yeah it's like you find a few people who are finding ways to make it work and you sort of test those out and you go well oh, it didn't actually really work so like yeah. why didn't it work or why does it work um, so that's that's the kind of cool part. Whereas, like, there's a lot of marathon running research. Yeah. Much easier. Like the elite level, they're running two hours, two hours yep. ten. Um, so that's probably where I've really sort of niched down. Like, that's the part that I guess excites me about it is like there's so much unknown, but there'll be so much I'll work out as I keep working in it. Yeah. And then as the sport of like the last twelve to eighteen months, it's just gone bananas. Yeah. Um, like there's people doing some pretty ridiculous things now. What are your metrics you use apart from obviously just global time or absolute time? What what are your metrics? What are you working with? So like really simply break it down sport by sport. I yep. mean, ultimately it it's a start line's here, finish line's there. Yep. Um, we got to try and get there as quick as we can. But within that, we got to break it down sport by sport and go where are the opportunities. Um, so a lot of the triathletes who come in from a running background typically are a bit weaker on the bike. Yeah. What what are the fixes there? So bike wise, we're looking at things like normalized power. So normalised power is a better version of average power. Mm-hmm. So if we take a 90k segment and a half Ironman and I look at their normalised power, it gives me what their actual physiological effort is. What's the difference between the two? So average power would be, like if you're riding along, it, it'll just purely calculate the average. So take, like you, your power is going to be volatile. Yep. So there'll be certain sections you might go up a little hill, descend, surge, whatever it might be, go around someone. Your power profile is going up and down, up and down, up and down. It'll calculate the the average of that. So you have a look. Typically, the normalized power will be slightly higher than that, and that 
that rep represents what the actual physiological effort is. If you stayed at a perfect steady state the entire way, what would that actually have been? Yeah. So like your average power might be 250, but your normalized might be 270. Yeah. So all right, you like if we set you on an ergometer and rode at 270, that's ex- that's the exertion you would have had. Yeah. So something like that's really interesting. Um, over time, it's like, are we seeing an improvement in that? Um, we look at things like decoupling as well, which is just a fancy way of saying how volatile is your heart rate for yep. your, your power output. Um, we basically want that to be as lower variation as we can so you have a really consistent effort. Um, that's good from like a pacing perspective too. Um, and then again, like we're looking at individually from a sport perspective, like we know towards the back end, second half of the run, you're going to start to, you're going to be starting to fatigue. Um, you half Ironman wise, like you're three and a half, four hours in. Ironman wise, you're seven, eight, nine yep. hours in. Um, what did that look like? Where did that occur? We're then balancing things like, what's your perception of that too? Like, did you experience any gastrointestinal upset? Was it like, did you just start to feel flat? So is it something we could resolve with caffeine? Is it something we can resolve with fueling? Yep. Were we just not conditioned enough? Did you cramp? Was it because of the conditions and hydration or was it because you just didn't do enough work? Like all of that starts to become yep. apparent based on what we're then seeing in those general trends of the data. So there's a couple of key things to look at, but you then just got to start breaking down bit by bit. Yep. Um, Where do you start? I, I generally will start with... Like, like I said, you commonly know where their weaknesses are already. Yeah. Like if someone's come from a running background, okay, I'm going to start with the bike and go, how can we get this up? Because if we're looking at diminishing returns, they're, they're going to have more to gain on the bike if they haven't done yeah. as much, they don't have as much experience. Um, from that perspective, particularly in the age group guys, like the pros as well, but pros, it's more so like 1% or optimi- optimization type things. But the age group guys, I'm looking at the actual exertion part and then I'm looking at, what was your aerodynamics like? Yeah. What skin suit did you buy? What helmet did you buy? Are you actually fit correctly on your yeah. bike? It's one of those sports that tech plays a really, really big role. You might be you might be producing more than enough power, but you're slow because you've got a horrible position and you're not slippery enough through the air. Yeah. Um, that's a really easy way to gain one, two k an hour on average. Um, so it, it's it's just and and that's where it's so individualized in terms of like you might have two athletes with a very similar profile before they start but they race completely differently in which case you then got to start to look at all right just what are the opportunities for that individual like was it something back into the run was it partway through the bike um was it something to do with equipment or was it actually a physiological thing that that's it, it's you really just got to sort of just go through a process, just ticking every box. All right, what yeah. happened in the swim? All right, did we go out too hard? What did we have in the half an hour before the swim? How did we fuel up the days before? Um, what's the wetsuit like? Was it too tight so you couldn't get a full extension? Did you have your tri-suit up under your wetsuit or down? Did yeah. that help? Did you get kicked in the face when you jumped in the water? Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it's not like swimming in a pool. Like, yeah, no. like They don't do the mass starts anymore, which is a little less chaotic, but like... Old, you still old, catch people though. <laughs> old Iron Man, they used to set fifteen hundred age groupers off at the same time. Yeah. Chaos. And they'd call it the washing machine. Like you yeah. just have feet, Chaos. arms going everywhere, and no one cares. No. They'll grab your foot and they'll pull you down. Yep. Like it's free for all. There's like there's kind of no there's no rules. way to like not mandate. Uh, which is which is I was gonna say which is hilarious because then you get to the bike and oh you don't want to sit within twelve meters but yeah <laughs> the person in front how how dare you yeah. draft how dare you but you could drown someone yeah exactly. Like it's a it's a bit silly like that. Um, so yeah, it's just a process of ticking the box and just going. All right, what what have we already ticked off and what what do we still need to work on? 
Um, once we tick all those boxes, like we're probably at a point where we need to completely reassess because majority of these guys aren't just satisfied with getting a PB. Um, really good example of that. Like a guy I worked with over the last couple of years and I'll shamelessly plug our Mets podcast. Um, it's no, no we, shame. We, podcast, we, I, I sat, we, we, sat, we sat down and had, had a chat about the last three years and he started out like not even in triathlon. Like He was clearly endurance inclined, but he hadn't done anything. Went and raced. Then came and saw me and was like, I like this triathlon thing, but I have no idea what I'm doing. The following year, he dropped 50 minutes off his time, which is like in a 70.3 is a lot. Yeah. He went from like just over five hours to like 4.17. Mm-hmm. Um, the following year after that, he only dropped a couple of minutes. And so then the challenge there was he'd seen such big improvement and he's getting to this point where it's like we're now looking at incremental gains. But those incremental gains had to come by completely changing everything we were doing. Yeah. Because the, the simple basic stuff just wasn't working anymore because he's, he's just not at that point. Yeah. Um, our next like six or 12 months was all just nutritional. Yeah. Like we didn't, we, we, we changed a few things from a, a physiology perspective, but he was going into those races, like not really worrying too much about what he was eating in the days leading in. What he was taking during the race was kind of all over the place. We optimized that and he brought the time down a little bit more. Went and did his best time ever and he finished the race and he just was like, nah, it wasn't like not, not good enough. He was proud of the effort. Yeah. But I remember him, I got it clear as my mind. He ran through the finish shoot. Melbourne 70.3 last year and he went like he's running through and I was like he he's not having he's not enjoying this yeah. like he knows he could have given more he was three minutes off his target time that's probably why yeah. but ultimately like the for these guys it's like well how do we just find that extra little bit extra little bit like not to say that it's ever good enough for some guys it is age group wise but when you're at that top end where you're sort of starting to push or oh, could we go professionally here mm. um, like it's how can we just keep getting better because someone else will keep going and getting better and better and better. Yeah, and I think even with nutrition, like in that, and obviously I'm not in that space, but I think it's one of those things that people don't realise how beneficial or positive it can be towards your outcome until you realise that it is, if that yep. makes sense. Like it's yep. it's one of those things that provides such a huge benefit, but you only realise that until someone gives you a kick in the ass and goes, hey, what are you doing here? Like, yep. And even finding that from just people doing long distance running because again that's more my aspect of my area it's just like getting someone to take a gel like an hour and a half in like makes a world of a difference but you don't realize that until someone tells you to do it yeah and nutrition is one of those things and as we know like we all eat food (laughs) yeah we eat three four times a day like it's one of those things that's just it's obviously essential for us and it's just part of our makeup but when we're talking about sports performance like that's a whole different ball game that can lead to such a positive outcome that i think a lot of people miss 100%. 100%. 100%. 100%. And that, that's where it's like, again, just by duration, something like a half marathon or a marathon, or probably more so half marathon for the typical person who might run 90 minutes to two hours. We know we've got a, like, a reasonably finite carbohydrate store. Yep. You can get through an event less than two hours with not much fuel intake. Like it's probably not great, but you could get through two hours worth of continuous running with not taking anything in. Your intensity is going to start to dip, but you'll get through okay. Same with like game of footy. Like you, you might top up here and there, but you don't have to take excessive amounts. Yep. Past that point, though, we know it's just like, if you're not taking anything for 90 to two hours and you keep yep. going, which you think about these races, like they're going 50-odd 50, 50 hour, hour and 10 in the swim alone in a full-distance Ironman. Yeah. And they're not taking anything because they're in the middle of the ocean. <laughs> so unless you're going to stop, pull it out. Water. Yeah. So you're going through that first bit where you're not fueling at all. So a lot of depletion going on in terms of fuel. And you're trying to minimise that, but the intensity that they're going at, like you're going to be burning through fuel. 
you get on the bike and it's like, we have to start topping up now, otherwise you're going to hit a flat spot real early and yeah. you've still got seven hours to go. Yeah. Um, so a lot of that is, yeah, part of it's just educating people to eat. Like the yeah. number of guys I have come in like age group wise and they're like, I had a guy last, end of last year doing 70.3 racing. Like when I say big, bigger frame um, compared to like the real like light guys who are like six versus kilo. me. Yeah, like pretty pretty much. <laughs> you could say it. Yeah, he was he was going he was going on like fifty not even fifty grams of carbs an hour, which is really quite low. And like the the old school recommendation like sixty to ninety grams an hour for endurance type stuff. Is that per um, kilo body weight or is there some relative measure of no, that so or the, is it the really the really it? old school like yeah. way was just like, well we know we can uptake sixty grams of glucose an hour. Yeah. Um the extra thirty comes from another transport. So you, fructose another sucrose another carbohydrate sure, yeah. source so and this is where the, the long course uh like i guess research isn't quite there because guys are doing 120 and i'll get to that in a sec but we don't really know how they're actually no, able to yeah, do it um scientifically we only really know up to about 90 so like just educating it's like well if we take an extra 10 grams of carb like that's still in the very low end of what we can actually do yeah. um he went and he's just like, I've just felt amazing. Like, yeah. I just could keep right. I was riding and riding, riding. This is great. Because um, he was just taking such low intake. But like, big he's going to burn through a lot of fuel really, really quickly. Yeah. Um, so a small little adjustment like that was just getting him into the general recommendations and not even further optimizing. Like, I want to keep lifting him up, but it's a process of like, we can't just, I can't just get him to go into that race after racing on less than 50 grams an hour. Um which if you think, if you want a sort of practical insight on that, that's kind of taking like two gels an hour-ish, sure. depending yeah. on what your gels are. Um, which is one every half hour. That's not too bad, but that's just not enough. Trying to get him up to say 90, which is kind of like taking three and a half gels, depending on what your gels are. Um, he's not. It's just not going to happen overnight. Yeah. It's a long process of getting him to be able to first tolerate it so yeah. he doesn't get gastrointestinal Gastro, upset. Yes. What gels are we using? At 50 grams an hour, the jelly he's currently using, the brand he's using might be okay. Yeah. Once we start putting in more frequently and quicker, that might not be okay anymore. So do we now start putting carbs in our bottles instead? Um, because we're now taking more gels, is it practical to carry them all or do we pick the ones up on course? Like yeah. you now start going through this decision-making process of how do we actually get it in practically? Um, but then you also got to train yourself to be actually able to absorb it. Like yeah. you can start pumping gels you start pumping gels and you're not used to it, you're going to get sick real quick. You're in quick. some trouble. <laughs> yeah, you're going to get sick real quick. Yeah. Um, so, but then even outside of that, like you might then have a really good tolerance of it and be able to absorb it and that's all fine. We've got a high intake strategy. You get to three hours, gastrointestinal upset sits in, uh, sets in and you're like, I can take gels like no tomorrow in training. Like this is weird. Like I still can get the gels down, but I still get in these problems. Yeah. Well, it probably came back to what did you eat in the couple of days before yeah. in terms of the type of carbohydrate that you're taking in? Was there already some, some damage through the intestine from the types and sources of food you're getting in? Not bad damage, no, no, yeah. but just enough. Like, so how anything much that leads to a negative outcome, I guess. Yeah, how much fiber were you taking in those couple of days? Like That might be normal for you week to yeah. week, but in a race circumstance where you elevate the intensity just that tiny bit more and do it for a bit longer, it's like now we're in all sorts of trouble and yeah. it had nothing to do with your like during race strategy. It was everything in the few days prior. So that's a huge area from a optimization perspective yep. in endurance now. And long course endurance is like, you get your new trick. Like most guys are fit enough to do what they want yep. to do. They just don't have enough fuel to be able to power the work. No, and I think people get stuck in the, I need to increase my capacity, not my ability yep. to use my capacity. Yeah. And I think that's yep. when we talk about, you know, people struggling with nutrition or not having an understanding of how beneficial it is. I think, 
it's easier for us as humans to think, train more, get better, get fitter, can do more. Yep. We forget that there's things that actually make us a little bit better at doing that, whether that from a movement perspective is clearing up an ankle or a hip or a shoulder or something that makes our movement more efficient or from a nutritional point of view of better utilizing or increasing our fuel storages so that we can actually utilize it. Yeah. Um, with, I guess, with nutritional strategies, if we're talking about, like, let's say someone wants to prepare for a marathon, mm-hmm. or doesn't matter what it is, anything, whether that is weekend warrior or that mm-hmm. is from a professional point of view, what are you kind of blanket starting points or rules for engagement, I guess you could say? Three or five, like, non-negotiable things in your, uh, your eyes that you need to be doing. Purely just nutritional? Yeah, yeah, purely just nutritional. Number one... What's your day-to-day hydration like? Yep. So getting into a... Like we know we know roughly, like if you're dehydrated by about 2%, so you could look at that as like jump on the scales if you're down by about 2% body weight. Um, you're going to lose about 8 to 9% of your performance at threshold. Yes. So threshold's a theoretical 45 to an hour. So when we're talking marathon running, we're running sub-threshold. So that percentage decline will actually be a little bit smaller at marathon pace. Sure. Yep. But if you're going into a race already dehydrated, we're in a bit of trouble because it's only going to get worse. You're not going to get to a point... Like, you can dehydrate yourself pretty well and still be running at the end of an re- event, but if you're going in a bit dehydrated, that's a problem. Yeah. Biggest thing is, is like, what what was your hydration like the five or six weeks before the marathon, not just the few days leading yeah. in where you're like, oh, it's going to be hot in the weekend, I better drink a bit more. What's your minimum standard for hydration? <sighs> I tip... I t- very blanket rule. I typically yeah. go, if you're about... If, you, if you're at least getting in two to two and a half litres a day for most people prior to what you're then losing from a training sense, yep. you're probably okay. Yep. Um, you don't need to be going crazy with it, but that's a very rough rule that fits most most sure. runners. Yep. Some guys are going to be higher and lower based on what you sweat, but that's where it sort of factors in like like today for like or tomorrow for example, like I'll go out and do a run. Like all right, I'll try and get throughout the day my, my standard two, two and a half. Mm-hmm. But then if I've got like an hour run, if I were to weigh myself before and afterwards, yep. see what I've lost if I need to put back another litre and a half or two litres on top of that, well, that's appropriate for that day. But today, I don't have to run, didn't really sweat a lot at the gym this morning, yep. so I might just go a little bit higher than my standard two to two and a half. Is it still like blanket, <coughs> excuse me, like 1.5 times what you lose? Typically, yeah. yeah. 1.2 to 1.5, again, yep. depending on what that sweat nice. rate was like. Um, I always then go, like, in key sessions in the week, a little bit of sodium within that, particularly the recovery side of things. Yep. Just helps you want to drink a bit more. Yeah. Um, if if anything, it's like yes, the sodium pretzels. Yeah, it's my go-to. The, the sodium replenishment's great. Um, I mean, the one that I'm, I just use a hydrolyte tablet. Yeah, like one hydrolyte tablet. Like I, you don't need to go again. Don't need to go overboard. But yep. if anything, something like pretzels, the, the salt in it's great because it wants you want to drink more. Yep. Um, even just the taste, like hydrolyte-wise, like it's got a little bit of flavoring in it, so that naturally promotes a little bit of extra hydration. Yep. Great, you're going to uptake that fluid a little bit better because you're going to want to drink it. Um, we don't want to get to the end of a end of a run. You've been drinking water during the run, or, or whatever it might be, and now we get to the end. And you go. The last thing I want to do today, because it's been hot and I've been drinking water all day, all through my run, is now drink more water. Sometimes that can just be a good yep. little change up, and then we get back on water later on. Um, hydration is really really key. Yep. Number Outs- two. <sighs> number two. I'd be going really looking at. It comes down to how long you're out there, and this is the thing I think a lot of amateurs miss. Yeah. Is that if you're a if you're Elliot Kipchoge, so if you're running two hours yep. for, a, for a marathon, that is a very different marathon or very yeah. different event to someone who runs four hours and someone who runs six hours. Yep. 
if you're running four or six, you've got to be more conscious of what you're putting back in than Kipchoge is running two hours. He doesn't have to put a lot because he vents over short duration. He's just covering ground quicker. He's actually depleting probably less. Yeah. Um, that's where the longer it goes, the more conscious you have to be. Something small and reasonably regular is not a bad way to go about it if you're completely new to it. Um, whether that be gels, and, and then within that, find what works. Yeah. So if you like gels, great. If you don't like gels, find another gel. If you don't like gels at all, eat something. Yep. Um, I generally, personally, don't really handle gels too great. Yep. So like from a football perspective, like half-time, I'm just on the lollies. Yep. But even like when I go and race like a 70.3, I get to the aid station, I'll pick up a couple of lollies yep. um, or a cup of Coke at an aid station because it gives me a bit of caffeine as well. Yep. Some people handle the caffeine great. Some people don't like the caffeine. Yep. Um, different doses of caffeine do different things. So you got to practice it. And then, like, find what you like, but then go and practice what you are attempting to do well in advance of the marathon. Yeah. Like, you want to be practicing that schedule um, pretty well. And I guess probably the last thing to follow on from that is practice above what you're trying to take during the race. Yeah. So that might be if you're, like, in a marathon, you could, if you're, if you're someone like my size, you can probably get away with sort of 60 grams an hour, 70 grams an hour mm-hmm. if you're running, like, a three-ish hour. Yeah. Um, so it's not a lot. So, like, a couple of gels here and there, maybe some cups of stuff at aid stations. If you're only trying to take in 60, like, in your training runs, try and get 80 back in. For general, what? how much is generally in a gel? Just the, off Gen- the 20, to 20 to 25 okay. is typical. Sure. Um, some will be higher, some will be lower, some will be more watery. Of course, yeah. Like, you, you got to factor in what's exactly in them. Um, but practice higher than what you're expecting to take during the race. Yeah. Because then when you get to... And, and in more difficult sources. So if you're expecting to, in the race, just be on fluids... Well, take gels in your training because that's a harder source for you to get down, but then take more of it. Yep. You get into the race day, you're at 60, easier source, body just takes it up sure. super quick. Um, for the, From a running perspective, you probably most people probably aren't going to be on solids. Mm-hmm. Um, but from a like Ironman perspective, like that's where we're looking at. For some guys, it's like doing gels all day isn't great. <laughs> <It's> like, <laughs> you're, we're now taking 15, 20 gels potentially. Yeah. We've got to find bars or bananas or something different. Um, so th- that that's probably the that's the biggest thing. It's like the the actual input strategy you have, like yeah, it's important, but you got to practice that strategy and practice above what you're aiming to take. So you you're going to get into that race and like we're just eliminating that aspect of guts are just struggling because you're putting so much back in. Yeah, let's say someone does a I'm just trying to think of some reasonable times like a four hour marathon. Mm-hmm. At what stages would you recommend they take an intake? <sighs> You want to be having something just before. So probably going around in like 150, 145 through a half maybe. Yeah, yeah. so I, I'd be saying um, if we go right through the day yep. or like right through to until you get to the end of the race, yep. I'd be going, you, you want to be getting a pretty solid amount of fuel back in about two hours before. Mm-hmm. So, okay, got to wake up a little bit earlier if your race starts at yeah, 7 o'clock. Yeah, everyone's favourite. <laughs> um, but it, it doesn't have to be huge, but like get a – Get a breakfast in. The number yeah. of guys I chat to just yeah. don't eat. I'm like, come on, like eat something. How do you get over that barrier? Before you go into like some strategies in that four hour marathon, how do you get over that barrier with people that go, I don't like to eat before I perform? A lot of it really is just setting a good just routine. Of, in the head. Yeah, pretty, like <laughs> if you like, you want to have a good day, like get up, get up that little bit earlier. Like some of the guys I've said, get up early, have something to eat and go back and have another 45 minute yep. nap. Um, if that makes you feel better. Um Alternatively, it's just small, small little increments as we lead in. So you want to like half an hour before you want to be having something small. So some some might do a gel, some might do half a banana, muesli bar type of thing like that. Just sure. small, quick little top up. Obviously, you want to eat well day or two before as well. 
Um, but then in, in a marathon, typically I say try to get to the 45-minute mark as best you can without really taking too much. Yep. A lot of people who are used to gels and know taking gels, once you take them, you feel like you can't stop yeah. um, because your body will be like, oh, this is nice. Start up taking it. The further you get, more depletion, you'll want to take it up quick. If we're just taking gel, 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 gel from early, like, again, it's just hard to keep that rate up and yeah. you'll start to pay for it a bit later. Yeah. But that's why I say if you can try to get the 45 to an hour mark first before you start really having to dip in, yeah. apart from anything, like, just settle into the race and get comfortable in the race first. But then... At that Especially point, in like an event like that, you, you spend half an hour getting out of traffic anyway. Yeah, hundred percent. And so th- that's where it's like you just want to be settled before you start taking on nutrition and worrying about that. At that point, then um, it's going to be different in terms of sh- schedule. I don't necessarily recommend specifically. Oh, you have to take something every half hour. Mm-hmm. Like, it's not a, part of it. Is a as need. Like if you feeling like you need something, take it. Yeah. If you don't feel like you need it how long's it been since the last one? If it's been 45 minutes, yeah, okay, it's probably a good idea. Yep. Just make logical decisions through a marathon. Like something like, f- again, four hours, like, and... and it's probably and a weekend at the intensity. warrior pace, I would say. Yeah, you know, yeah. Take. Like three and a half to four hours is very, very common. Yep. Um, that's it in that sort of five minute K pace yep. sort of category around either side of that. I can um, do my math. Good. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but that, that's where I go, like... Just something semi-regular is, yep. is going to be fine. Like you, you're not getting to the end of that. You're, the intensities you're running at, you, you, as long as you are taking something, which could be just a gel. You might take a gel every 45 minutes. Like that's going to be probably enough for those paces. Um, marathon running an event like that, you can generally get away with it. it yep. It's As we start getting longer than that, that's where it's like. But then also from a running perspective, like how many gels can you actually carry? If you want to take your own nutrition, how many gels can you carry when you run? Yeah. Like, are you going to try and carry 10? Like, yeah. good luck to you because yeah. how many pockets you got? Most people don't <laughs> really have don't any pockets running pockets. <laughs> Yeah, so then you go, oh, am I relying on what's on course? Is that give me enough? Yeah. Like, okay, I'm not taking as many gels, so I'm going to save them for every 45 minutes. Yeah. But then every aid station in those 20-minute increments in, in between, I might just have a sit and do like a little mouth rinse of carbohydrate. So like just pick up a Gatorade cup, mouth rinse it, you can swallow it if you want, or you can yeah. spit it back out. Like that's going to give you a bit of an effect. We know that mouth rinsing works, um, and it's just a small little dosage to get you through to the next gel. I mean, all of these things are going to be highly, highly individual. Of course, yeah. Like how frequently and stuff, um, but and like what that source is. Like I have guys who just like get the, the Ziploc bags and just pour a bunch of honey in it. Interesting. Um, those like I've fuel, had people freeze honey. The fuel belt um, little bottles. So when I say fuel belt, for those who aren't familiar, it's a very triathlon thing. It's literally a clip-on belt that has little yeah, pouches yeah. you have little <laughs> bottles in. Those little bottles, it's though, you, tri- take, you it's take... It's a triathlon bum bag. It's a tri- yeah, it's a triathlon <laughs> bum bag. Um, those little bottles. So Lionel Sanders is one of the best like leading triathletes, long course triathletes in the world. He does maple syrup and salt. Interesting. Yeah, He's Canadian. Yeah, Mac checks out. <laughs> <laughs> but like, like something like that, like if you like maple syrup and you don't like gels, like maple syrup's a really easy source to get carbohydrate. Yeah, it, I've had people like freeze like honey and water to like make a brittle kind it, of thing. It tastes good. Yeah. Like if it tastes good and you like getting it, like those, all these variations, but like having a thing like that, you might be able to load it up a bit thicker and just sip on it. Yeah. So you're not taking the whole lot down, but then in between you're taking some other stuff. So I generally say as long as you're getting something in, semi-regularly throughout and just gradual little top-ups here and that you're going to be fine at those paces. Yep. It's once we go and start going significantly faster, you get yourself into trouble because you burn through the fuel a hell of a lot quicker. Yeah. So we've got hydration number one, gradual intake number two. What's maybe number three? 
I reckon number three is back on what I was saying with like practice you yeah. practice you um, fueling prior and practice above and practice more difficult than what you're actually going to do. Like most things, it's very personal. Yeah, hundred percent, hundred percent. It's like and like you look at that from a training sense and go, well, for like something like half marathon, I go. Typically, you want a few more k's in the legs than what you're actually going to be running on the day, or at least more time in the legs. Yeah. So we do it. We condition a bit over so that the under on race day is much easier. Same with nutrition and same yeah. with hydration. Is can we take a little pause? Yeah, snap piss. We're we're done in like five. Can you hold? Oh, yeah. Oh. <laughs> I've been sitting here a while. I've been getting through this. I got one more question. Right, and then we're okay. done. done. So Easy. My my last question is: What a for someone who's looking to get into medium to long form endurance, mm-hmm. what is your recommendation? Come and see me. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so we'll take that one. Well, shameless. We'll take that so one. my my the reasoning yep. where that comes from. We had a board. Uh, we're on our whiteboard. We have mm-hmm. a question every week. Um, what was the question last week was what do you want to achieve in 2023 and I've had yep. a lot of people 5k run 10k yep. run half marathon marathon Ironman etc yep. that was a lot of the common themes yep. last year and as we know the 2023 new year new me kind of thing 100%. a lot of people start like this that this time of year is a killer yeah a lot um, of people start like that which is yep. great but yep. what is for someone who maybe has already started doing a little bit or yep. you know hasn't but wants to what is your recommendation in that space it largely depends on what that goal is Ironman is very different to a 10k correct um my first thing is go and speak to someone who knows what they're talking about, whether it's a coach, an S&C coach, like so, someone who has a – or has gone and done one of those events. Like yeah. someone who has just that extra little bit of expertise in what you already have, mainly just to see if it's realistic or not. Yeah. The number of athletes who come to see me and go, yeah, new year, new me, I'm going to go and do an Ironman. First question I ask, have you ever done a triathlon before? Yeah. If the answer is no, I say go and do a sprint. Yeah. Because even if – even if they want me to coach them from the outset and they go, you're going to be the best person. Like I know you can, I know I, know I can get them to there. They might hate triathlon. Like they, if they haven't done one before, they might hate it. Yeah. Have you swum in open water? No. Probably go do that first. Cause if you get out there and you get like Geelong 70.3 is coming up in a couple of months. Like that, that course out at Geelong in the Bay is basically a triangle. You go out by like you go out, five, six, seven hundred metres just into the middle of the bay swimming. If you're not comfortable there and you have to get rescued, so to speak, because yeah, yeah, yeah. you, you're uncomfortable, you panic, whatever, and or you can't make the cutoff time, um, race is done. Yeah. So why are we doing nine months of prep if, you, if you're not going to be able to actually handle the, de- the demand? So a lot of that, that, that sounds harsh, but it's, it's we just got to be realistic about the timeline. Like maybe this year is not the year to do the Ironman. This year might be the year to do a half Ironman. Yeah. Or let's go and do an Olympic distance. That progression might happen really quickly. Cool, we tick that off really fast. Now we can build. Great, like that'll work for some people. Yeah. So I think the biggest part of it is like set your goal and get really excited about it, and then be willing to have a really realistic conversation if it's achievable. Yeah. Um, it definitely can be. Particularly if you put down the goal is Ironman, the cutoff sixteen hours. Yeah. Um, and there's cutoffs throughout the event. Personally, for me, I would rather you get into the, that race. And wh- you might be a 12 or 13 or a 14 hour. That's fine. You're well under the cutoff. But, like, if you're going to deliberately have a 14 or 15 hour day because you just want to make yourself hurt, you're a crazy person. Yeah, gross. But I, I want you to be able to get through that race and feel like, yes, I've achieved it, but I achieved it really, like, I did really well. Like, yep. I did, like maybe in my mind I thought I could just complete it, but I did 11 hours. Like, that well above my expectation. Like I would rather we do that because we've built a really good foundation of gradually moving through the distances 
then we did did it when you're ready for it rather than jump in and you just have the worst experience. Yeah. Because again, from my side, it's like I want people to come and race triathlon. Like, yeah, it, it's a great sport. Okay, like totally. it's a really great community. Um, but it's the type of thing that, like, you, you just got to be realistic about what what's the timeline, the expectations of where you're at now, and where you can go. Um, outside of that, largely, then it's just set as much of a foundation as you can. You want K's in the legs. Don't have to go overboard with it, but just gradually, just build just general volume. If you're looking at a nine month timeline, like as we sit here, a lot of people who look at Ironman might be doing Bustleton. So that's first weekend of December every year. We've got eleven months to prep. Yeah, these these few couple of months, even the guys that like I coach and things like that, I'm just like we just got to accumulate. Yeah, like I'm not really fast. Like we'll have some high intensity in there to mix it up, some variety. Volume's not massive just yet, but it's just we just have to get two, three, four months of just really consistent. You get out there, you get it done, we nail it, we go again. Um, you just want to be bulletproof to be able to go, I can handle bigger training volumes, not yep. a problem. Yeah, um, They're the two things. Yeah, time is crucial. Yeah, 100%. And prep. Cool. Any more right. for any more? Uh, appreciate you coming down again. All good. You've know, been down here a few times for a little lift here and there. but Yeah, it only took me four seasons to get on the podcast. No, right. Hey, 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 <laughs> don't blame me. Blame the other two. I, I'm, I'm the new guy now. You're the host, aren't you? I'm now. Oh. I'm taking over. Okay. Taking over this place now. <laughs> too much spare time on my hands, you know. Just <laughs> like to talk much. to people. Uh, no, I appreciate you coming down. Um, I'll uh, put the Mets podcast and things and your Instagram in the description. Well, Georgia will because, you know, she's a star and that's something. what we pay her for. Absolutely. So. No, no, I appreciate you coming down. Uh, I'm sure it was highly valuable to a lot of people. One, just learning about you and what the umpiring side of life is. You know, yep. lots of people are football fans. But also from, as we said, this year... January, everyone wants to do something endurance-based. Yep. You knew me. So uh, some very important tools and strategies for people that they can utilize, which is fantastic, especially for our members, clients, but also people in the wider Virtus community. So Absolutely. I appreciate you coming down. No worries. Thanks, Thanks for having me. You too. Have a good day.